Good to see all of you here this morning. It's my absolute pleasure to bring you this morning greetings from the family of believers at Berean Baptist and the Cole family, Don and Jacob and Josiah and Kate, and of course our little miniature schnauzer, Daisy, who's part of our family but rest assured does not attend worship with us. It's great to be here uh, with you uh, this morning and to bring to you uh, God's word. We're going to be looking this morning at the book of 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, specifically in verses uh, 12 and 13. Uh, Before I begin, just to give you a little bit of the background or context of 1 Peter, Peter in this letter is writing to the church, specifically a church who is being heavily persecuted, being persecuted for their faith. And Peter, mind you, knows firsthand from firsthand experience the temptations of the flesh that are in response to persecution and suffering um, as he himself denied his Lord in those same situations. And in light of that, Peter is encouraging these these Christians on how to suffer well. Not if they suffer or not to be prepared for it, but how to suffer well. How should we suffer as Christians? And we know Peter learned that the hard way from his experiences. Again, he was the one who turned his back on our Lord Jesus Christ when faced with persecution. And he's been making the point to the church of the importance of the body of Christ for each and every member in the body. The church, Peter tells us in his letter, is the household of God. It is the place where each and every single one of God's children should find a place of refuge. Not in a building made of brick or stone, but in the people of God, in God's people, in communion with the saints. In chapter 4, where we're going to be looking this morning, Peter has uh, been speaking directly to the role of the body of Christ. Will you bring my Bible, please, brother? That's kind of necessary. I don't know what y'all do here, but we don't preach without our Bibles in California. And so again, Peter's been speaking directly to the role of the body of Christ. Now, the period of time in redemptive history, brethren, that we find ourselves, as did Peter, is referred to as the church age. And what that means is it means that it is in and through the church of Jesus Christ that God is primarily demonstrating his grace and his glory. The church is the vehicle through which God is advancing his kingdom. And like our brother taught us this morning, not retreating his kingdom, but advancing it. Peter's concern in his letter is that in the midst of suffering and persecution, the church not grow weak with their love for one another, but rather grow in their love for one another, thereby demonstrating the love of God for his people that is demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. My prayer for us today, friends, is that as we consider our text, that our hearts will be encouraged, that our love for Jesus Christ would be inflamed, that God would be pleased to intervene in our own hearts and draw us closer to himself. Paul has stated in his letters that the appropriate response to our salvation, when we consider the mercies of God towards us in our salvation, is that we would no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the way to have our mind renewed is for us to feast on the word of God, the living word of God. This is how God initiates transformed lives. The writer of Hebrews tells us, of course, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
uh, able to pierce as far as the division of joint and marrow of soul and spirit and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so let us plead with him this morning that as we approach his word, he would do just that. And so if you would turn with me uh, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, I brought my travel Bible with me this morning. And so I'm going to be putting these new bifocals to the test. And I am reading this morning from uh, the NASB. And so if it's a little bit different than what um, you have, you'll understand why. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 1. This is the word of God. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your living word. Holy Spirit, we pray this very moment that you might unsheath your sword and that you would have your way in the hearts of all men, that you would cause those who never have to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that those who know you and are known by you 
might be rejuvenated, might be encouraged and comforted and convicted by your word this morning. Conform us further into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the result of an interaction with the living word of God this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for many people, even Christians, those who know the Lord and love him, the first word that comes to our mind when we encounter uh, difficult trials and suffering is the word, why? Why is this happening? Why did this have to happen? And we might even say, well, why me? Or we might look at somebody suffering and say, well, why them? Why is this happening to them? Sometimes we look at all the people who are way worse than us and we say, well, why not them? Why couldn't it happen to them? And of course, many Christians would be found saying, we may not know why on this side of heaven, and this is often what we tell other folks, isn't it? We may not know why or the reason for the suffering that we experience. And while it is true to an extent that we will not see all of God's purposes on this side of heaven, believers need not be stumped as to why we endure suffering. This is not a mystery to us from God's word. Peter tells us in our text this morning that we shouldn't be surprised by it. Many times we receive bad news and we think, this is the kind of stuff that happens to other people. This isn't the kind of stuff that happens to me and my family. But what ought our response be as Christians to such trials as we encounter them? I want to suggest to you, brethren, that we do not need to ask why when we are experiencing suffering. Peter says in verse 12, do not be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. Suffering is not strange in the life of a Christian. Christians are no strangers to suffering. You have to understand, brethren, suffering is as natural for a Christian as water is to be found in an ocean. It is a natural part of the Christian life. And the reason is because suffering plays a very significant role in the life of a believer. And indeed, it is an absolute necessity in the life of a child of God. God has made his purpose in our suffering very clear. And today, Peter gives us two reasons for our suffering. And so if you're tempted to ask why we must suffer, Peter sums it up with two words this morning. And those two words are shaping and sharing. First, God's purpose in our suffering is our shaping. Again in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter uses the phrase here, fiery ordeal. This, this phrase made up of two words, in the Greek is only one word. It's the word perosis, and it literally means fire or burning. The writer of, of Proverbs wrote in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 21, fire tests the purity of silver and gold. And Peter most likely has this same understanding in mind when he used this word in our text this morning, which I believe is very clear when we read the next phrase in verse 12 when he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. So we know for certain this is the context in which Peter is using this. Again, Proverbs explains that fire is used in purifying silver and gold. 
In the process, fire burns away all of the impurities, and then all that remains is the precious metal. Peter uses this same imagery in our text. And so the first purpose of our sufferings is purification. Now we need to understand, though, too, brethren, that this does not mean that all suffering is in direct response to some specific sin. We don't experience the suffering and know that, well, there's some specific thing that God is attacking me for, some specific thing in my life. However, if we're going to be responsible believers, we have to understand that God's word does teach us that he does discipline whom he loves. And so then there's wisdom to search our hearts and our lives in the midst of suffering to see if perhaps there is something in our, in our heart or in our life that is hindering our relationship with the Lord and or our Christian witness. And so with that in mind, we can pray the prayer of David like was read for us this morning in Psalm 139 when David said from a pure heart, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David understood that regardless of what he understood his mind to tell him, that it was possible for them to be for there to be something in his heart and in his life that he was not necessarily keenly aware of that was driving a wedge between him and his heavenly father. And so he asked the Lord, show me, search my heart and reveal it to me. Show me ways that I'm not walking with you and then bring me close to you. Um, but again, it's not always the case of specific sin that suffering is seen in our lives. For consider... Um, Job in our Old Testament. Before any of the suffering that Job experienced that we read about, the horrific things that he experienced, before any of that, we read the words of Job 1.1, which says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And so if you're one that says all suffering is a result of specific sin in your life, what do you do with somebody like Job, who the Lord's, her Lord had said was blameless and upright, and then look what befell him. But you see, brethren, Job's suffering was solely for the demonstration of God's glory. Often we're so surprised, when we are so surprised or set back by our suffering, our understanding of the point of life is skewed. When we are surprised by the things we encounter, it's a clear indication that perhaps we're not thinking with the correct perspective about life and the purpose of life. You see, the purpose of our time in this world is not self-absorption. It's not to experience every form of self-pleasure to the fullest extent. Rather, our purpose in this life is to glorify God, and according to God's perfect, infinite wisdom, that often includes suffering. But you see, it's through suffering, again, that we are purified and refined. James teaches this as well in James chapter 1, starting with verse 2, when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Now, of course, the suffering that Peter's readers are experiencing in our text is specifically related to persecution. 
And of course, there even more, we ought not be surprised. For Jesus prepared us for this as well in John 15 when he says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And the Apostle John also explained that we should not be surprised when we suffer persecution in 1 John chapter 3 when he says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. But even the suffering, though, even the suffering through persecution is used to refine us. It serves the same purpose. We also learn God's purpose of shaping us in our suffering from a correct understanding of Romans chapter 8, a very popular passage used by well-meaning Christians to comfort those who are, are suffering. Perhaps some of us have used that this morning as well. Romans 8.28 that says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. How many of us have been in a very difficult situation in our life, a really difficult trial, or in the midst of suffering, and a well-meaning brother or sister comes to us and says, Brother, God works all things together for your good. And in the same context, they say, Something better is right around the corner. Things are going to turn around because the Bible tells us God's going to work it together for good. But if you've been alive for longer than five minutes, we know, brethren, that sometimes the experiences don't get better. Sometimes it doesn't turn out for things that are circumstantially good, at least in this life. Sometimes we don't get a better job. Many times we're not healed. And eventually everyone dies, right? And many times at an age younger than expected. The existence of suffering does not always, and in fact often does not, lead to something better in this life. And so therefore, experientially we can say, this must not be what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. Either that's not what Paul's talking about or God is lying to us. And the only other option is that we're wrong. Brethren, we cannot continue to offer false hope to people by telling them that suffering happens only because God has something bigger and better for you around the corner. Because that is not the truth in this life. So then, what does Paul mean in Romans 8 when he says that God works all things together for good? Well, let's read on. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And here's the good, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And so what then is the good that is promised to us in Romans 8.28? It's found in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You see, brethren, the good that causes that God causes in all of our circumstances and our suffering is that he is using those things to conform us further into the image of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom he loves very dearly. And what better thing could God ever do for you than to make you look like his son? It's the most beautiful and compassionate thing that he could do. This happens as we learn in all circumstances, both good and bad, to glorify God by looking to him, depending fully on him, exactly as his son did. 
At every turn in his life, Jesus demonstrated complete and utter dependence and trust in his heavenly Father. And that's what it looks like to be conformed into his image. And so then this takes us to the second purpose of our suffering, and that is sharing. It's right here in our text in verse 13. Peter says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. You see, our sufferings, as we experience them, allow us, they give us the privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. But if you're like me, one of the questions that comes to your mind, perhaps, is, well, what kind of suffering? What kind of suffering qualifies for sharing with Christ? Do we have to be scourged? Do we have to be hanged in order to experience this sharing in Christ's sufferings? Is the suffering that I'm experiencing allowing me to fellowship with Jesus in his own? Now, of course, the suffering that Jesus experienced was the most intense form of persecution. And we most likely will never experience the same kind of suffering, although we may and most likely will and ought to experience some level of persecution as we live for the Lord in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But the question again, does my physical suffering or does this relationship that you're suffering or whatever it is, does this qualify me to share in Christ's suffering? Well, I believe this morning that it does, or let me qualify, I believe that it can qualify in the sharing of Christ's suffering. The key is to understand that is how, how Jesus responded to his suffering. And as we respond in the same manner, we are being conformed into his likeness. As we consider this, brethren, it's also for us, important for us to consider this. The sufferings that we experience are never meant to be compared to the sufferings of one another. In other words, it's not my brain cancer versus somebody's breast cancer or it's, it's not your stroke versus somebody's ingrown toenail. It's, it's not your bad relationship versus somebody else's lost job. It's never suffering versus suffering, but it's a matter of how we respond to the suffering. God has neatly ordained each and every one of our lives to include the specific suffering that he has for us. And that's different for each and every individual. I'm reminded of the conversation that our Lord had with Peter after his resurrection. If you remember, he came to see his disciples on the beach, and they were having breakfast. And then they went for a walk. Peter and and Jesus went for a walk, and um, the Lord had just informed Peter that he was going to die by the sword. It was tragic news to hear for Peter. And all of a sudden, they turned around, and somebody was standing behind them, and it was the apostle John. And, and Peter asked the Lord, he said, well, Lord, what about him? And, and the Lord responded to Peter, essentially, this is the Robert Cole paraphrase. He said, Peter, don't worry about him. I'm, I'm not talking about him and me. I'm talking about you and me. I'm talking about the plan that my father has for your life. What's it to you if he remains until I return? His life is from God and your life is from God. And so God has intricately designed each and one of our lives um, for us specifically for us for our glory and so we're never to compare 
um, suffering versus suffering. I had a brother soon after I was able to return to church after my surgery. A brother had come up to me and he said after church, he said, Pastor Robert, he said, you know what? Uh, Joanne and I have been going through a lot of things lately, but man, with what's going on with you, we just realized that we just need to quit complaining, that it's nothing compared to what you're going through. And my response was, brother, I appreciate the sentiment, but you're missing the point of your suffering. It's not your troubles versus mine. The question is, how are you responding to what God has put in your life? It's different. It's unique. But the purpose is still the exact same. It's in how we respond to the suffering that God puts in our life. So then let's consider how Jesus responded to his suffering so we can ask ourselves if we're being conformed to his image. If you look to Luke chapter 22... Starting with verse 41, speaking of our Lord, it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. As Jesus made his way towards his cross, brethren, he knew full well what was going to happen. And he knew full well that he was about to bear the weight of all of my sin and to receive the full measure of his father's wrath. And yet he continued to trust him. Again, at every turn in his life, Jesus demonstrated complete trust and dependence on his father. And rather than run from his father, thinking his father did not care or was not able to help him, he clung even more tightly to his father. And even, brethren, at the darkest hour when he was bearing our sin and drinking God's wrath, he cried out, My God! My God! Last year, we were at a conference and Joel Beakey spoke on this very thing. And he noted here that Jesus at this point was still maintaining that God was his God and that relationship had not changed. Even in his darkest hour, and in our darkest hour, as we cling to what we know about who God is and what he has accomplished for us, calling us his own, brethren, we are being conformed into the image of his son. And again, what better thing could your loving heavenly father ever do for you? And so don't be surprised when you experience suffering, for it is God's refining fire refining you and shaping you into the image of his son as you share in his sufferings. This is why Peter goes on to say in verse 13, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This is difficult to read when we're in the midst of suffering. And I'm not suggesting, nor is Peter in our text, that we should be able to put on a smile from ear to ear in the midst of our toughest sufferings. But I do believe, brethren, uh, from personal experience at this point in my life, that it is in that moment when you find yourself at the end of yourself and you can cry out, my God, my God, and you cling to the objective truth of your salvation, that you can and you will experience indeed what Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing, amazing passage. And it's an amazing truth that that I've never experienced fully until recently. But that is indeed, indeed true that there is this peace that really, to be honest with you, it doesn't make sense in the midst of life's most difficult trials. But it's there. And in Christ Jesus, he guards our hearts and our minds. Even, brethren, if our suffering leads to death, we know that very soon we will experience the beautiful fruits of the resurrection of our Savior. And we too will be resurrected and will worship him in person for all eternity. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And so then, when we understand the purpose of our suffering, we can rejoice knowing that God is doing something amazing through it as he shapens us into the image of his Savior. And we can rest knowing that even if our suffering leads to death, for us who believe in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, joy follows suffering and life follows death. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which promises us eternal life, a life forever with you in heaven that is absent of all sin and sickness and disease. And God, we confess to you together this morning that so many times when we come across life's struggles, Father, that we, uh, we, we play the victim, God, and we think that we're the victim as if something is unjustly or unrightly happening to us. But God, we confess and understand this morning that we truly believe that, God, that you are sovereign. And as the psalmist said, all my days were written in your book before there ever was one of them. And so, God, we confess this morning that when we call ourselves a victim, we understand that what we believe about your sovereignty is if we are the victim, we're calling you the attacker. And so, God, we proclaim this morning that we are not victims of our circumstances. Rather, we are the unworthy recipients of your unending, amazing, awe-inspiring grace and mercy in every form that it takes in our life as you use it to shape us into the image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You are so good to us. And Father, we love you. And we thank you, and we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would work in and through us to help us respond to our suffering in the manner of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be more conformed into his image, that the kingdom of Christ would advance as the world sees his people responding to life in a way that brings you glory. We pray in the power of our risen Savior, in Christ's name, amen.